0: On in, in San Francisco, this is The Writer's Block. My name is Miranda Mellis. I'll be reading from The Revisionist. The Revisionist is a story that was written when Bush refused to sign onto the Kyoto Protocol and largely in response to the distortions and lies of the Bush administration with regards to global warming. The title character is hired by the government to surveil weather patterns and then to spin the reports to the public. The Revisionist. My last assignment was to conduct surveillance of the weather and report that everything was fine. They set me up in an abandoned lighthouse seven miles outside the city the lighthouse stood in the center of a junkyard atop a mound of mossy dirt. It was trumpet-shaped with inward-sloping walls. A stack of old sewing machines and broken pianos surrounded the dump. Local kids jumped from piano to piano, stomping the sour keys. Dogs chased them, barking From the tower I couldn't hear, but I could see the kids jumping and the dogs chasing, their jaws snapping open and shut in the barking maneuver. With the latest surveillance technology at my disposal, it was difficult to stay focused on the weather. I was tempted to make my own observations, and I did. Looking out of the lighthouse with the ED-100, a telescope that delivers images free of chromatic aberration, thanks to the FPL-53 Extra-Low Dispersion ED optical glass in one of the two objective lens elements, I saw a family driving to the country on vacation. Behind them, a bomb went off. Through my headphones, I noted the rushing sound of radiation cruising low across the land. The father who was driving saw the mushroom cloud in his rearview mirror. The others didn't turn around, so they never noticed. When they reached the campsite, the kids pitched a family tent. The father went inside, zipped up the flap door, and wouldn't come out. I need time alone, he called out. His family sat frowning around the picnic table. The father was laughing and moaning inside the tent. The older sister shook her fists in his direction. The mother tore her straw hat off and stomped on it. The father heard the twisting feet of the mother, Coming out of the tent and seeing the hat on the ground, he said, There's something I've got to tell you, but not in front of the kids. The mother said, Why don't you let them hear it too? We'd all like to know what you're doing in the tent. There's been a nuclear attack. Saying these words out loud had a strange effect. Father began running around and around in circles, and then he fainted. The kids went inside the tent. Through my telescope, I could see survivors running around in circles, buildings curdling, the very air pixelated. Inside one apartment building was an elderly woman. Her hearing aid was broken. She was watching the panic on television but could not understand what they were saying. She strained to hear them. She shook her head and wrung her hands. She kneeled and prayed. Her prayers exploded out of her mouth all over the carpet. She coughed up shards of bone and tiny blood and gristle soaked figurines. She washed the prayer viscera in the sink and hung them from a clothesline outside the window. Upstairs from the old woman lived a blind man with a seeing eye dog. This man and his dog was something of a renunciate. In every house, the state had installed a radio and a television which had to be on at all times. They could be turned down, but not off. Though the blind man could not see the television, his seeing-eye dog sometimes watched. He didn't have a computer or a phone. He had a welcome mat at the door, one blanket and only the clothes he wore. He ate two small meals a day and drank water. He paced or sat contemplating. The dog liked to stand by the open window, his snout to the wind, chin on the windowsill. Several times the seeing-eye dog looked right into my eyes. The old woman left her apartment one day and collided with the seeing-eye dog in the narrow hallway between their apartments. He nudged her and barked. She watched how he opened and closed his jaw. She pointed at her ears and shook her head to say, I can't hear. The dog looked at her, and she at him. The seeing-eye dog walked around and around her legs. Her clothes unwound and floated into a spiraling vacuum above her head, created by the peregrinations of the seeing-eye dog. Her hair unfolded in a fan formation. Her pupils spilled open, submerging her retina in black ink. The seeing-eye dog continued his circumnavigations. The woman gradually floated into the air. She revolved in a tight, catatonic orbit, forming the central axis of a wider, concentric circle whose outer limit was delineated by the circling seeing-eye dog. After they had quarantined the part of the county most affected by the bomb, I published a report showing that the radiation was harmless. My report on the radiation-less bomb was widely circulated and I was promoted. They dispatched a tutor to upgrade my observational skills. He stayed at the lighthouse for a week and taught me remote viewing, sleepless sleep, and telepathy. He sat in the same chair all week with his hands on his knees and his eyes open. I asked him about himself, but he would only discuss work. Observe, record, propagate, disseminate, he said. Do not reflect. He taught me to be very still, to look and listen. I practiced recording analog digital and telepathic data, and subsequently revising. My employers wanted the real reports. I sent them the unrevised originals. I struggled with static mental noise that interfered with my ability to hear and see what was in front of me. The tutor told me that eventually the static would clear, and then I would not need machines anymore. After my tutor left, I resumed my personal surveillance habits, using the new technologies and practicing the skills of empathic proprioception that the tutor had imparted. I could hear people's heartbeats. My own heartbeat could sync up with others, even over long distances. A lot of people could see by observing their environments for themselves that my reports were fraudulent. People wanted to get away. Escape schemes flourished. One guy made a pile of money selling plots to start over island. I went there myself, at first on vacation and then for real. They gave you a new identity, a clean slate. It was the new expatriation. You got a giant eraser like the ones from grade school and just slid it over the past. It wasn't just the radiation that made people flee to start over island. They flocked to the island because the particulars of their lives had become meaningless. Their surfaces were covered with faded images like old walls. It was tiring to climb over this wall every time there was a party, a run-in, or the required date. One had to show one's date a good time. It was not easy to do. The significance of the date slid around in people's minds. It was suspected that dates and death were somehow linked. It was normal to get to know people and then to be scared or hurt, even killed by them, and then all the mutations, so they came. One came to the island seeking a new identity, but found things the same as before. We pretended not to know each other. One walked past one's parents looking straight ahead, resisting the urge to accuse them of something. After the initial difficulty of pretending not to know anyone, soon we genuinely couldn't remember. But there were side effects. Reddened eyes and this compulsion to rip things. People would be talking mildly at the bank and suddenly rip out their own hair, or go outside and rip the moat of shrubbery surrounding the bank with their bared teeth. They would stumble through parking lots, chewing the shrubs, eyes gyrating. I soon returned to my revisions at the lighthouse. At least there I didn't have to pretend not to know anyone. I hardly ever saw people. I saw them, but they never saw me. I might have stayed on the island if there was no one there I recognized, but there they all were. Friends, acquaintances, family members. At first I didn't mind, since we were now strangers, I no longer had to do their dishes, take them to AA meetings, make sure they'd taken their pills, fight them off, go to counseling with them, worry about them. Be jealous of them, suspect them of lying, miss them, hold their babies, take them to the hospital, help them move, fantasize about them, comment on their haircuts, see their point, admire their looks, proffer my goodwill, keep their secrets, pacify them, reassure them, seek their approval, recover from their abuse, read their manifestos, find them unreliable, try to see their good qualities, hope they'd vote, impress them, ignore their stupidity, or compete with them for jobs and housing." One hoped that one could become someone else on the island, but the assumed identity eroded under pressure and health problems were insoluble. Everyone wanted to be free of the auger, the word, the sound, the image, and the omen of cancer, to be rid of pollution, hate, loneliness, fear, and purposelessness. After the initial relief of moving to the island, one could not deny the persistence of the old life, One took a new name, a new everything, and still it dragged on within. I fled to start over island hoping to be free of the pervasive sense of foreboding brought on by my profession and a lifetime of repressed violence, confused wandering in relationships, and endless, exhausting tete-a-tetes. Most of my friends' pets had grown old and stiff, one friend's dog required diapers; several friends had quit drinking and smoking. The rest were preoccupied with trying to find free surfing classes or abandoned castles and eluding creditors. The day after I ripped my own mother's clothes off in a supermarket, I suspected I needed to leave Startover Island. My last conversation there convinced me of it. I had been visited by a lady with razor-thin lips. She made astral killings her business. She sold air art on the side. You have enemies here, she told me. Evidently she'd been hired to murder my astral body. Furthermore, she said, she had already done it. Hadn't I noticed anything different? Some others, feeling remorseful, had gone back, but they lost their authority over their mutant children who now did whatever they had to do as well as whatever they could get away with. I concentrated on taking measurements of the rising ocean, training my instruments on the creeping shoreline and tidal fluctuations, and revising my data to report that the sea was just as usual. Nature will always be natural, the tutor had told me, for what is ever not natural? Even lies are just a kind of weather. We are not interested in little truths or perturbations. There are too many of them. The ocean had always functioned as a kind of clock for the sentient, but gradually it stopped telling our kind of time. The ocean was simply not the ocean anymore in the usual sense of the word. It was on to other measures. It tossed up 400 dead dolphins one day and claimed 100,000 baby seals the next. I fabricated phenomena, makeovers for a bevy of new industry-spawned carcinogens, The air is getting cleaner by the day. Cloud miasmas. The future is bright. Animal depressions. We're living longer than ever. 500 trillion nanobots built an atom at a time. War in a suitcase. Carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuel combustion have proven highly beneficial to life on Earth, especially cockroaches and poison ivy. One woman had only been given one second to speak. And what could she say in such a short amount of time? She used the second as well as she could. She opened her mouth and a tiny spider danced out. The spider essayed on mirrors. Mirrors should not be accountable for the actions of just one mirror or mirrors that have gone before. By the same token, the behavior of the mass of mirrors cannot help but affect one's perception of particular mirrors. I was raised to distrust mirrors and to keep my distance from them. While I have known some good mirrors, I have never wanted to get too close to one. Indeed, there are times when I feel hatred for a particular mirror, especially if it seems to be getting away with something or being granted special dispensations just because it's a mirror. I've tried to see beyond the mirror's appearance, to see some kind of essence beyond the mirror's facade. But this is difficult to do because mirrors have a way of wanting it both ways. They want you to see beyond their facade, to appreciate them for qualities that transcend the fact of their mirrorness, and at the same time they want and expect all the privileges and pleasures that society grants mirrors. Indeed, a mark of their privilege is that they want to be seen as more than, even exceptional despite, their privileged positions as mirrors. And yet, if I'm honest with myself, I can see that there are similarities between myself and mirrors. No one wants to be judged on the basis of physical appearance alone. It takes a special kind of looking to see beyond form. To subscribe to The Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. (laughs)